0: Welcome to VChat number 43. I'm David Davis from actualtech.io and VMwarevideos.com. I'm excited to be joined by special guest today, Mr. Wes Higby. How you doing, Wes? I'm great.
1: Thanks for having me, David.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So, Wes, tell us a little bit
1: about yourself. Yeah. So, I am, uh, my history is being a geek, I guess. And uh, lately, though, I'm really helping people uh, eradicate emotional blind spots with technology. Okay. So it's a weird value proposition, but um, what I love is that I have a history of loving technology and I've kind of extended that beyond technology to understand some of the people issues around technology, some of the blind spots we have.
0: Okay, okay. So kind of a high level, the high level definition of what you do. Um, I mean, I know you from being a plural site author. So yep. I know you're a developer um, you have obviously a ton of development, um, you know, experience, expertise, uh, history, and you've created a ton of Pluralsight courses. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of those?
1: Yeah, so some recent ones. Uh, I kind of have an interesting uh, spectrum of courses, and you'll see new ones coming from me as well. But uh, I have some recent ones about asynchronicity in JavaScript, so just getting down to the nuts and bolts and really reasoning about asynchronicity, I have a couple in that area helping people with understanding promises and generators. So that's a code side of things. I also am working right now, um, they're just being edited, they'll be out soon. A couple of courses about console, so service discovery, which is kind of on the flip side of the world, so how do we uh, deploy our applications and get them to talk together. Uh, And then I'm also working on a Jenkins course and shortly a Team City course as well, so some stuff in the CI, CD space as far as orchestrating, automating tasks and whatnot.
0: Okay. Okay. Awesome. And so for the VChat viewers out there, the infrastructure folks, um, you know, before we lose them and, and they're thinking, oh, yeah, like, whoa, I'm what, what is all something. this stuff? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the big reason I wanted to have you on the show today is to talk about VMs versus containers. And I know you have, you know, a unique perspective on that. And and also to talk about DevOps, um, which is, you know, the hot, the hot thing right now in infrastructure, uh, you know, is DevOps and containers and cloud. And all of us infrastructure people are just still kind of trying to figure out, is this, is this really, you know, the way of the future? Is this what we should be studying? And, and if we should, how do we do it? What do we learn? Where do we start? Our, you know, our heads are just spinning with all these terms. You know, you you talked about some of your courses right there. And I'm sure most of the audience is like, I have no idea what half of the stuff was, you know, he just said.
1: Um, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's start with DevOps. I did a podcast recently called DevOps is Dead. Just to summarize, what I was trying to get across there is that, The stuff in the DevOps space that people are talking about is not new. So if you are having problems before DevOps, adopting DevOps, whatever that might be, is not going to fix your problems. Uh, The teams that I worked with in the past, we naturally um, gravitated toward automating the things we were doing because we hated doing them. So not only did we do development work, but we had to deploy and support the application, update it, and so worry about deployments thereafter, do database migrations and all the different complex things that are involved with rolling out and supporting software. And we hated things, so we automated them. And this was long before anybody coined the word DevOps. Um, I think we're just really seeing people talk about this on a large scale. Uh, because finally, we're really realizing as tech people, hey, you know, we could put our tech skills to use for ourselves, not just for other people. So, Not just to build other people software to automate their mundanity, but we can also build software to automate ours.
0: Right, right. So for, for the typical, you know, vSphere admin, I, I mean, I, I think they're still trying to figure out exactly what DevOps is. I mean, I get the idea that it's, um, you know, 80% uh, a political... Um, you know, change, you know, breaking down the silos in the IT department and people just working together. Um, And then maybe the other 20% is using, you know, smart software automation, you know, like you talked about scripting, all those things to just make things more efficient. Is
1: that? Yeah. So I wouldn't say I'm going to be the person that can say that I know what DevOps is, because that's kind of like trying to define God. (laughs) I think think God might be more specific sometimes in terms like DevOps and Agile and whatnot. Uh, I think if you look at What's being discussed, though, what's valuable is talking about, first off, a balance in how we develop software. So do we have isolation between people that develop the software and people that support the software? And uh, there's no right or wrong answer there. In some cases, it doesn't make sense to have isolation. It's just insane. It's just adding overhead, especially if you're doing this all internally. So if you've got an IT team or an ops team that's completely separate from your from your development team why not try and bring those people together sometimes there are a lot of benefits that could be gained on the flip side there are situations where it doesn't make sense to bring those teams together because they might be in completely separate companies um one company might have to support software another company might be developing the software getting those people to work cohesively together is probably not going to be worth the time unless it's a huge project so we kind of have to balance uh balance a perspective when it comes to how people work together but i think that's one of the important things is just having that discussion of how should people work together instead of just doing it the way we always have done. And I think specifically looking at individual projects and deciding what's best for this project versus the next project. So that's one big thing. Uh, I guess the other big point in the DevOps space that I think is valuable to be looking at is just the automation of of mundane tasks. Um, we can start to we can start to take a lot of pain out of our lives but also, I think one of the important things, the, the shift in mindset here is that if we can take out a lot of this pain, we also will end up speeding up our process. And if we speed up our process, we actually have a new opportunity to work in an entirely new way. Um, and most companies are missing the bus on this one entirely. And That's why I say if you just grab the fad, you're going to miss the point. Um, if we speed up the process, we can get to a point where we're rolling out small changes instead of queuing everything up until we have quarterly releases and dumping all this stuff out. And so what people can be doing differently is working on one thing at a time. So instead of, uh, I see this all the time, I see like a project and an organization will have like 50 branches in it. I have no idea why people think that they're doing DevOps, I guess, if they still have like 500 branches in their code repository, because it really kind of misses the point. You're not taking advantage of the fact that You can get your team to work on one thing for today and you could roll that one thing out before you move on to the next thing. And so you never have like all these irons in the fire that you have to worry about uh, shuffling around and making sure they're still burning or whatever. You can focus on one thing at a time. Um, So this is a new perspective that could be gained, uh, a new way of thinking just by getting automation into the picture. Um, And while I say that and while that's a potential benefit and a new way to think, also again have to balance, is it worth it? Like do we really need it? Are things working well with the projects we're working on? Maybe we don't need this for everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, great points. I mean I I guess at a high level I see DevOps as, you know, hey in, in IT we just have to be more efficient. You know, it it comes down to that. Business is moving faster, we have to move faster too. The old ways of doing things, you know, with distinct groups and silos and um, you know, points of control, I mean, those are just all kind of old and slow, and hey, we got to do things better and faster, and DevOps is just a way for the developers and ops to work together. It could be NetOps, it could be <laughs> storage ops, you know, all these different things. It, you know, in uh, infrastructure, you know, we're trying to, we've also talked about elevating ourselves to a higher level, and just getting rid of all these different silos, and, and just being IT um, infrastructure people, infrastructure admins, let's say, you know. Well-
1: That's one really I think I talked about I don't want to get too much into that show in this one, but like what I was trying to say in that show is it's not just Dev and Ops that we've got a problem with. Right. We've got to stop treating IT as its own thing. IT is a part of the business. Developers are business people too. We've got to get rid of the divisiveness in all dimensions if we want to really take our business to the next level.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: That said, I will disagree. I don't think business is changing any faster than it ever has. I just think we have an opportunity to possibly leverage the ability to change quickly. Okay. Uh, with that said, I don't think it's always important. To, speed is always important. I got a great article, I just I think it's publishing today on InfoQ about stop measuring turnaround time. Uh, time matters in some situations, but in many situations it doesn't. So actually that's a great question to ask yourself. How important is turnaround time when it comes to investing in DevOps? Because then you might Uh, invest in more automation or actually less automation and maybe you're working more on the cultural side of things to get people just to work together better.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, culture is a huge, huge part of this whole discussion. So, so, I mean, moving from DevOps... Um, yeah. The question I wanted to ask, ask you also here is, what about virtual machines? You know, are virtual machines dead? I think that's a big concern with, you know, infrastructure people, especially, you know, VMware vSphere admins um, that I do training for on Plural Pluralsight. Um, people that I know, you know, they've built their career around VMware vSphere, you know, for the most part. Um, so... The big concern is, you know, with containers and Docker popularity and all this, you know, our VMs going by the wayside and we no longer need VMs anymore. And and we just all need to convert our VMs to containers today. You know, what's your take on that?
1: (laughs) So it's tempting, I think, for people to come to that conclusion. I think it's very narrow minded to to come to this conclusion because uh, it almost requires that the only thing you're thinking about when it comes to containers and VMs is efficiency. Uh, so I've heard people discuss and try and position uh, containers as just a means of being more efficient than VMs to utilize more of your resources to crank up your utilization maybe eighty89 percent of a server instead of 30 or 40 percent with VMs or whatever it might be I think this is very narrow-minded though because containers and VMs have afforded a lot of opportunities to work in new ways that people just aren't taking advantage of and if you were to blindly say that containers were replacing VMs, well, maybe in the case of uh, situations where you need efficiency, like maybe that's the case, you would switch to containers. But in other cases, that's simply not the case. Um, For example, on my development machine, I'm on a Mac. At least at this point in time, there is no way for me to run a Linux OS without a VM. There's also no way for me to run a Windows OS without a VM. So I don't see, uh, unless the need for that goes away, unless we can get rid of operating system differences, uh, we'll still need some virtualization to actually change out the operating system we're working with. Um, And not only that, but um, with VMs, there's still a great argument to be made that you have a degree of isolation that's greater than a container. And there are going to be situations where people want that, uh, perhaps even in development. Uh, In my console course, I uh, have a lab environment that's comprised of, uh, at the end of my second course, 14 separate VMs. Yes, I could have probably pulled that off with Docker containers. Um, I don't think people at this point would have understood the course then. And uh, maybe in five years they would. But uh, the VMs are a nice way to represent what our infrastructure looks like right now and what our infrastructure is going to look like for the foreseeable future. So there are great use cases. Uh, for VMs and there always will be. We just can't be so narrow-minded to think that the only benefit of containers is efficiency and thus VMs are out the window.
0: Got it, got it. Yeah, so I mean if I were a developer and writing a brand new application to run in the cloud, would I write it, would I run it in a container?
1: Yeah, very likely. Uh, with new new apps, why not? Like, uh, I would be looking at containers simply because we now have the ability to have the same environment all the way through. Okay. Uh, now, of course, you're limiting yourself when we're talking about this to just Linux containers, really, at this point. When does containers are starting to become feasible? Uh, once those are feasible, yeah, I mean, you probably would just assume that your code's going to run in a container. But that container might be run as well, might be. It is going to be running on a VM on your computer, probably, because you're probably not developing on the OS you're going to run in. Um, so you might be on a Mac developing uh, a Linux hosted app or you might be on a Mac developing a window hosted Mac or Windows hosted app. Uh, so in those cases you're not going to you're going to need a VM as well so they're both going to be a part of the picture for the foreseeable future um, and even up into the cloud like there, you, we could talk about a point where we just run containers almost on bare metal machines more or less and, and maybe that'll happen but I think that'll largely be transparent to us as consumers of cloud services. So, you know, ECS, for example. Uh, who knows, maybe there's somehow that they're working on that already, or maybe that's how it works already. I have no idea, who cares? When I'm when I'm saying run a container for me, run a container for me. If I'm saying run a VM for me, run a VM for me. So I don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. So that will be probably more transparent if we start seeing, um, switching to like a bare metal uh, environment where we're just running containers without even a VM or some type of virtualization.
0: Okay. Okay. So, I mean, let me ask another question. Say there's a large enterprise out there, they have a bunch of different, you know, types of applications. Um, How would they convert to containers? And I mean, certainly some come from like commercial companies, you're gonna have to wait for those commercial companies, I would think to support running the apps in containers. And I mean, it's not totally under, I I guess, unless they do all their own software development, maybe. But what's your take?
1: Right, so I wouldn't recommend to anybody that you run and port everything to containers. And largely because what we're seeing with Docker is just the first iteration, really, of container technology. Um, we're already seeing an explosion of alternative container technologies. Even Windows containers are a little bit different than Docker containers. So if you just write, like, why would you port everything you already have? Leave it as is. However it works is fine. And when you're changing a system substantially, and it makes sense, like you've done the you've done the cost benefit analysis, and it makes sense to port over to running in containers, then go for it. But don't just willy nilly push everything to containers because before you can even do that, the next thing is going to be here. <laughs> and we really need to I think that's the critical part of, of even thinking about containers is um, we should step back and just look at the value proposition here, because I think what we're seeing is just a mindset shift in how we develop software. Uh, I think we're finally starting to see, uh, if you just look at the benefits of containers, why would I suggest to a developer, a few moments ago I said this, that we would probably be developing a new app with containers. Uh, the reason I suggested it is because containers give us the ability to standardize packaging Um, distribution, scheduling, verifying, scanning, security, all these aspects that are involved in getting software from development through to production, they standardize it. Uh, Almost to the point where um, one of the things that I see out of this container revolution, just because of the speed of containers, with Docker Hub, we really have a cross-platform app store. Like, Microsoft still hasn't even got it right with a Windows App Store. <laughs> with Docker Hub, we have a cross-platform App Store. Like, I can pull a Linux container and run it on my Windows machine pretty darn easily, especially with Docker for Windows these days, uh, to the point where uh, it's really no different than just installing and running regular software for me on a Windows computer. Hmm. So if we start to look at some of these benefits of packaging, distribution, how easy it is to run something, Um, Your app doesn't need to be worried about these things anymore. So you as developers can focus more on the value proposition of your app, which is whatever the the business value that it performs. You don't need to worry about how am I going to package it up, how am I going to make sure that the right dependencies are installed, how am I going to support five different OS's, five different Linux distros maybe, five different app servers if you're doing a Java app, maybe three different databases. You don't need to worry about that anymore because you could actually describe your application with containers now. So that your customers or whoever is running your app doesn't need to be bothered by the environment that it runs in. So that means you don't waste time in these aspects anymore. Like there's never been value in supporting um, or there hasn't been much value, at least that I've seen, in supporting multiple distributions of Linux or trying to support, for example, multiple... Uh, Tom or multiple, sorry, app servers in Java. I still don't understand that to this day. Why there's so much of a need to support all these app servers? Can't uh, can't you develop for one? And of course, in the past, um, the problem has been that you you write something for Tomcat and you give it to a customer that has no Tomcat expertise. So they want WebSphere or something like that. You don't have that problem anymore with containers, though, because it'll be making sure they have container expertise. And if they have that, then you then you can distribute your container that bundles up and um, kind of encapsulates the rest of the problem. Um, So maybe if I step back and summarize what I said there, if we start to look at the value proposition of containers, that's what we should focus on. We shouldn't just run to port everything to Docker because these value propositions are going to evolve into new things over time. And we should start to think about every time there's an evolution, what does it look like in terms of packaging, distribution, scheduling, uh, maybe verifying uh, the integrity of a container or whatever the package is at that point, scanning it and trusting it, etc. So yeah,
0: so that's a great point. I think you know we should compare the value proposition of the container as well as the VM. Uh, yep. for what we're trying to do and see what's best i mean for just from what i know about containers versus vms one of the things i've heard is that containers today aren't as mature when it comes to things like um high availability and load balancing of the compute load across servers automatically and you know advanced networking configuration and and all that kind of thing so you know maybe yeah. is is well, that a...
1: go ahead and that's a, that's an interesting area so we can kind of get into this but um what we're starting to see with containers is, uh, and I'm seeing some companies doing a good job with this, for example, HashiCorp, um, as we've talked about before. They're starting to really think about different problems that exist in the space of deploying software. And definitely one of the really cool things about you know, Docker, just as, as a container example, is that it makes it really easy just to get an app up and running. But if we're honest, the story around um, deploying and managing high availability software, uh, you're not just doing it with Docker Engine alone. You're talking about maybe something like Docker Storm, Doc, sorry, Docker sorry Swarm, uh, or many other tools in that space. Uh, I think what's maybe different uh, is that we're starting to see these as separate problems, and we're starting to see separate tools crop up. And this could be a good or a bad thing. It could lead to complexities that are unnecessary. But it also could be a good thing in that you can kind of plug in different components. So you might be using Docker containers, or you could actually be even just using a VM. But maybe you're using a tool like Nomad, which HashiCorp is developing, uh, as a scheduler. And sure, it's new, um, but in a year, year's time, uh, it will be bulletproof. Actually, I've already used it and it's bulletproof. But in a year's time, it's just going to be like one of those things we look back at as very mature. Um, and so, Nomad, what it, I guess, the unique value proposition here, is that this is what would help you with your high availability and failover and whatnot, because it's going to manage a cluster of resources for you. Now, what's really neat um, about Nomad, and maybe I'm getting off on a little bit of a tangent, is it gives us a new way to think about how we uh, set up our infrastructure. So in the past, we've been worried about uh, building up these machines and then updating them and keeping them alive. And we've kind of always had this idea that we would just modify existing infrastructure. When we move to containers, um, we have new opportunities to just spin a container up and down really quickly. That alone doesn't mean we're going to run everything on a container. What that does, though, is I think it's opening up a lot of doors for people to invest in technologies like Nomad that make it easy to do that with containers, but then also make it easy to do it with VMs. So if you look at Nomad, not only does it make it easy to for, for high availability, for example, you you would you'd have a job file and you just have a declarative line that says run two of these. So you run two containers. Well, also with Nomad, you could have a job type that's a VM, and you could say, run two of these, and it's a VM. Um, So what's neat is because containers are so darn fast, we're building technology around that. And some people are wise enough to see that we could bring that, that, that new technology to older technologies as well, like VMs, and start to do some really neat things with VMs that have always been there that have just been kind of impractical.
0: Nice, nice. So one scheduler to rule them all, essentially.
1: Yeah, uh, you're starting to think more about um, – and, and it's not like you would have to have Nomad. There are plenty of schedulers being created, and there are plenty that exist. But you're starting to think about that as a isolated chunk that should be have its own life cycle and should manage things on its own. And let me, let me tell you what this looks like because this is super neat. I think people will understand this. Your infrastructure now uh, with a scheduler in place – would be uh, basically a bunch of dumb VMs that you would bring up in the cloud. So you just bring up a bunch of what I like to call dumb compute capacity. It really has nothing on it except the scheduler client. Okay. So Nomad client, for example. So it's, it's just a slave, like in any master-slave model. So what's neat is uh, your infrastructure provisioning story is extremely simple. It's really just boot this um, image at this point and install, if needed, this client, if it's not already installed. And that could be burned in as well to an image. Once that comes online, it hooks up to a set of servers, and the servers tell it what to do. Hmm. So that's your provisioning story. It is dead simple. Actually, I think that a lot of what we're seeing could obviate the need for configuration management almost altogether, except for when it comes to installing software. I think configuration management is still great. But we really don't need to do anything but that. Um, we have these dumb nodes come up that can do things like run containers or run VMs, etc. That's all bundled into a base image that you could just share with almost the world, actually. You don't need that customized to your environment. And then the deployment side of the story comes comes into scheduling. So now you have the ability to have a declarative file. And if anybody wants to see what this looks like, go look at the nomad job files, where you can basically say, this is the Docker container, or this is the VM that I, the VM image I want to boot off of. Here are the parameters. Here are the environment tweakings. Maybe here's a few volume mappings. Uh, go, and I want five of them. And then a second later, maybe you have a new version of your app. <laughs> These days, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> uh, you say use version two of the app, and the scheduler will take care of do a rolling up, take care of a rolling update. So it'll bring down a couple of your containers or a couple of your VMs, and it'll start to bring new ones up. You know, keep doing that until everything's transitioned to the new version of your app. Um, The benefit of this style is infrastructure provisioning is dead simple now, Um, potentially. Deploying jobs is really not the responsibility of your developers nor your organization anymore. No longer do you really need to be writing that logic into your applications. You write applications that can run in the confines of, um, schedulers, which really, schedulers don't put many constraints on an application. You basically write, write apps that uh, would already scale well and you let the scheduler take care of the dirty work when it comes to scaling up, scaling down, uh, rolling updates and all that. You don't need to worry about that anymore uh, in this new paradigm of thinking. Nice, nice. I'm gonna to have to check out Nomad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's a great way to be very forward thinking. But the thing I like really about Nomad as a scheduler versus say Docker Swarm is it's not limited to containers. It's not even I mean it's not just limited to Docker containers. So it's taking a very uh, forward thinking approach where uh, I believe you have uh, key new VMs, you've got uh, Docker containers. You can even run a Java process, much like Mesos would have. So you could just run a Java process uh, in a change root environment. And you have all these different approaches to what work you want to schedule. That's the mentality. What work do I want to schedule? Where is the package at? How do I pull it? And then how do I run it? So those are those critical components, again, I was talking about earlier that we're starting to um, shift our mindset around. Taking those responsibilities away from developers and putting them, and away from organizations and putting them into tools that we can all just rely upon.
0: Got it. Got it. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm starting to wrap my head around this a little bit. You know, it's basically choose the best tool, you know, for the job. Absolutely. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Look at the value proposition, choose the best tool for the job. I mean, if I think about my toolbox in the garage, I've got a power screwdriver, but I also have all the other screwdrivers, too, and and other tools, you know. But I don't always use the power screwdriver. I still have regular screwdrivers, and there's a reason for that. I mean, there's different tools for different jobs. So, um,
1: And it's not wrong to use any particular tool for any – you know what? So what if you could have saved a few seconds using the power – screwdriver you got it done with the regular screwdriver who cares right that's that's my other take on all of this is um uh maybe with the vms is vms are dead mentality we have such a tendency to assume that there's one right way to do things and now there's a new right way and everything we've done before is somehow wrong and that's just not my take my take is there's no wrong way to do the right thing so find the ways um, that are out there, VMs, containers, and whatever comes next. And hey, even just change root environments and see what works best for your particular environment.
0: Got it. Got it. So for de- for uh, infrastructure people who are interested in DevOps, they're interested in containers. Um, they want to you know prepare their career for the future. You know, what do you recommend that they learn? What do they start?
1: Sure. Well, first and foremost, like everything they know about uh, the VM, everything we all know about the VM space. Has corollaries in the container space. So look to take your existing knowledge and anchor it into the new way things work. Now, that doesn't mean that there's a one to one mapping between VMs and containers. Um, For example, one thing you're not going to see, I don't think, is any, um, you're never going to like move a container that's running. Like we do that, we talk about doing that with VMs, but there's really no reason to do it with containers because containers can be. Brought up in seconds. So why would we why would we go to the trouble of moving a container that has disk, network, and a running application live when we could just bring it down and bring up another container in a fraction of a second? Probably. That just so don't think that everything will map one to one between these two domains. Now, when it comes to um, learning about this, I think the best way is just you know Docker makes this really simple. So get Docker installed on your computer and find the ways. Find the things you could be doing with Docker that will make your life easier um, because then you're kind of inverting the learning process. One of the things I think that's really cool about Docker is I no longer need to learn how to set up a tool, how to download it, how to you know, build it, compile it, whatever, if that's necessary, how to start it up, how to make sure it's still running, all that stuff. I don't have to know about that anymore. If I just learn um, Docker and container management, then I can leverage all these existing containers that are out there to start playing with new technology. So maybe what people want to do is um, they've been wanting to learn something new. Maybe they, for whatever reason, some, somebody maybe wants to learn MongoDB, for example. So maybe what they do is get Docker installed and use Docker to run MongoDB, which is a pretty quick process, You Docker run MongoDB, and experience what that's like to just be able to spin up a system that you've never worked with before in two seconds, aside from the download. <laughs> that's just amazing. And then as you're learning maybe about MongoDB in that case, Maybe eventually you start to peel back the covers. So one of the neat things about Docker is when you're ready, you can go look at that Docker file, which has all the instructions that were used to build that container. So you can go peek at the shell script, basically, that built up that container. and Now you can learn how to set up MongoDB. And you're learning probably from the people that wrote MongoDB, not from somebody that just wrote a blog post about it. So you have this unique opportunity to learn how to do something that might be really valuable, how to set up MongoDB, uh, and you could bring that back to your VM work. You might need to set MongoDB up on a VM so you could bring what you learn back into the VM space. And I think if you do that and you just look for these opportunities to take advantage of it, uh, you'll naturally learn what you need to know. I wouldn't, um, though, force myself to try and... I, I wouldn't just force myself to watch a bunch of courses on containers. I would have a need for it first. And then as you don't understand things, go get the learning to understand them. Okay, okay.
0: That's that's a good good idea. I like that. So, um, you know, get started with containers, learn a little bit, and try to figure out some real, like, applications, some real ways they can help you. I like that.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've done I, – I can think of all the things I've done with containers. Um, there's there's something called Jupyter. It's a project that allows you to write develop Scala and like a web app that has a notebook anyways long story short uh, it's a, a hassle to set up I had a docker container running I think this was the hardest one for me it took me a half an hour to get a docker container running on that one um, I've, I've looked at the elk stack which if anybody's looked at um, that thing is nuts to set up uh, I had it up and running in about an hour all the there's like seven or eight different components you need and you some of them you want to scale and what not to play with I had that running in an hour MongoDB, stuff like that, I can get people up and running in, in seconds. Um, I'm, I've run things like just nmap in a container when I didn't have it locally. So like, I've done all these different things. Um, even even for my Jenkins course that I'm doing, I'm running Jenkins in a container. It takes a few seconds. It's much faster than downloading uh, the JAR file and starting it up. Uh, I did a Team City webinar the other day with JetBrains. I, ran team city in a container as well it took me a few seconds to start up this stuff is just you find the ways that you're already doing things that are a hassle and try and use containers for them when it makes sense and you will take the time to learn what you don't know and you'll really start to get that big picture of things
0: very nice very nice i've even seen a blog post about somebody running uh, minecraft in a container Yeah. yeah
1: There's all kinds of stuff that you could run in a container. And if it's valuable to you, then you'll go learn the nuances around containers. Cool, cool.
0: So you've got, I know, over 10 courses on Pluralsight.com. Um, you also have a newsletter at WesHigby.com. We'll, we'll include the links, of course, in the show notes for this uh, episode. But, uh, and then you've got some new courses on the way. Why don't you tell us quickly about those?
1: Yeah, so once again, I've got some console ones underway, a Jenkins one. I should have a Team City one coming soon. And uh, maybe some HashiCorp stuff later this year as well. And I
0: know you were talking about console um, for, for infrastructure people might be of interest. What What is console? Yeah.
1: So console is service discovery. So when you start to have more and more services, you want to connect them together and doing that perhaps with config files that are static that you kind of have to manually update or, or if you've ever tried to do that type of configuration management inside of uh, maybe Chef chef or Puppet, you know that it's a hassle. Um, So console gives you service discovery as a tool. It flips on your head how you configure applications so that the process is more dynamic, more real time. Um, So you could, for example, be scaling up and down um, some web servers that you have and automatically that information can real time be pushed into an HAProxy uh, configuration file. So there's no um, latency and perhaps some convergence of a CM tool. It's just immediate uh, updates. And you can see my course for that example, actually.
0: Nice, nice. And um, consoles from the same people, HashiCorp, who created yeah. Vagrant.
1: HashiCorp as well. Yeah, it's a bulletproof product. It's actually been around for quite a while. Um, so that course is actually going over something that's kind of older at this point. But uh, definitely worth it, worth a look. And one of the benefits it has, say, over something like etcd, is just that it's... Um, It has a first-class concept of service discovery, so it has primitives around services. Uh, It's not just a key value store. So when your services register, that information is in an HTTP API that you can query. Um, But the big one for for perhaps this audience, uh, it has a DNS interface to all this. So if you have legacy apps that you want to have dynamic service discovery for, you don't have to update them. You just have to get them registered into the service uh, registry and console and then other apps can query via DNS uh, for not only uh, IP addresses, but um, also service records. So to get a port for another app as well, that's more probably futuristic. But uh, yeah, there's a DNS interface, which means it's just great for legacy because we're already all uh, in our config files doing, we're putting some uh, DNS in to, point our, to glue our services together. Uh, so why not just let that reference uh, something like console and have it be dynamic then.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, a uh, really great insight on, you know, virtual machines. Are they dead? Uh, containers? Are they the future? Uh, DevOps? Is it, is it really a thing? Um, and, you know, for more information, I hope the audience out there will check out uh, Wes's courses on Pluralsight.com and also his website and his newsletter at uh, WesHigby.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, Wes.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, David. It was a pleasure.
0: Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, take
1: care. Yeah, bye.